Hey, listeners, thank you for tuning in again to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. This may be episode 100. We are right around that number, including bonus episodes that have come out. Thank you so much for listening for all this time. I cannot tell you how much it means to me. So thank you. A couple of quick updates, and then we'll jump right into the episode. First off, we have now picked our two barrels of Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye. I was down in Nashville in June, picked two barrels that were completely different from each other, but both just knocked our socks off. So those are going to be going live sometime in the early fall. I will keep you up to date on that. Number two, we have multiple other barrel picks coming. The first one that's probably going to come out is going to be a barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks. This was chosen in partnership with Perry over at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. So you co-listeners are really going to love that. And we are brainstorming some sticker ideas right now that is going to make it even more attractive for your shelf. Hopefully you'll drink it, but it'll be good for the shelf too. Another barrel pick coming out, Spirits of French Lick, is getting chosen as we speak. And I'll keep you updated on that. Last thing, and then I'll let you go right into the episode, is... During my last update, I mentioned that there were four spots available at that top tier of $25 a month. At $25 a month on Patreon, you get not only first access to, well, everything, and access to everything that I put out, but you also get top tier priority for barrel picks when they come out. You also get the opportunity to join me on a barrel pick. Already, we've had members of that tier down with me in Nashville for the Jack Daniels pick, helping out in the Spirits of French Lick pick, and also given some input on the barrel pick. So every pick from now and going forward is going to have a Patreon member, at least one from that tier, on the pick with us. As of today, there is only one spot remaining in that $25 tier. So if you've been holding out, if you're pushing it off for any reason, I'd say jump on it because this plot is probably going to go quickly. With that, I'll say, you know, of course, if the $25 is out of your range right now, we still want you to be a supporter. We still want you to be involved. The next tier down, $5 a month, is going to get you that second access to all barrel picks. I can't speak for the $25 tier, but pretty sure there'll still be some barrels and bottles available for you at the $5 a month tier. That just really helps us grow, covers expenses, and keeps the podcast going with these awesome guests that we've got. All right, I have talked for almost three minutes. That is a ton of time. I am sorry for that. But with that, that's all the updates for this month. I'll keep you updated as they go along. Now, here's a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we are going to, I believe, a state we haven't been to before. We're going down to Missouri. Uh, and yeah, actually, we haven't been there for Cooperages either. So we're going to Missouri for the first time. And with me to talk about Ben Holiday Bourbon and McCormick Distilling, we've got Kyle Merkline and Jordan Germano. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excited. I, I, that's really exciting that we're the first Missouri. Uh, yeah. Jordan yeah. is all Missouri all the time. So that has to make her happy for sure. I love Missouri and Missouri everything, right? Kyle and I always banter back and forth because he went to school at K-State and I went to Mizzou. So all about the Missouri. All right. So you got a serious rivalry going on just right there. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it serious because K State's clearly better. But otherwise, oh, well. no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, we, I, we have fun with it. 
that's my bet. I gave him that opening. So that's yeah, my bet. yeah, exactly. It was <laughs> right there. No, it's yeah. uh, it's always fun. Sports is fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, as so long we, as you don't take it too seriously. I'm a Mets fan. I can't take anything too seriously right now. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we you know I try to go to different states. I just posted the hundredth episode, and uh, between different states and different countries and such, we'll eventually get to everything. Uh, but Missouri, for whatever reason, you know, it's on, it's geographically not too far from where I venture. You know, I feel like I've gone around it. I've gone to Virginia, of course, Tennessee, Kentucky, Texas, but not to Missouri. So, uh, with all of that said, glad to have you guys on to be the first. And so just to set some context back in mid 2022, I'm sitting at home one day and I get this package and at that point i was getting a lot of packages which my wife was not happy about and uh but i opened this one up i was like i don't know who this is from uh and open it up it's this beautiful presentation i see ben holiday distilling or uh, ben holiday bourbon and mccormick distilling and i was like oh this is quite nice it's quite new it's a beautiful presentation set it's at the bottle the glass and i tried it had knowing zero about anything having to do with the brand the history anything and i was like damn this is actually really good and since then i've kind of been in contact off and on with with you guys with um noelle which i'll bring her in a second and since then I've been wanting to talk about the products and after your recent release for the soft winter wheat the soft red wheat excuse me uh then just was a perfect opportunity to do so so yeah. with that let's uh Let's just jump right in with the, you know, if you want a brief history of, you know, Ben Holiday and what, yeah. how it started. I, I'm going to defer to Jordan because she is much better with history than I am. Uh, I was not good at history in school. I like the show Drunk History, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let Jordan cover that one. Yeah, I always like to take the history, then I leave the science to Kyle, because that's also not my deal. So as far as the history goes, so our distillery has been around since 1856. Um, It was established by a man named Ben Holiday, who was indeed from Kentucky. So whenever he came to Missouri, he brought the knowledge of bourbon with him. And when he settled in Western Missouri, which is where our distillery is located, he discovered um, on the uh, property he had purchased that there were limestone springs. And he knew what that was good for. He knew that was good for making bourbon. So in addition to um, many other business endeavors that he had, he started the Holiday Distillery. So um, fast forward several years, his brother David was running it for a while. And then it actually left the Holiday Hands um, in the early 1900s. But it's really, Ben went on to do some amazing, amazing things himself. He was actually at one point the largest private uh, employer of the United States. So outside of the federal government, he um, had the most employees spread out for all of his businesses, which is truly incredible to think about today, especially since nobody really knows who he is. Um, That's something that really baffles us that, uh, yes, the distillery is the only thing left standing, but... Um, He had this incredible career and this incredible story. So we stopped distilling bourbon back in the 80s. So around 1985, we had stopped distilling bourbon because nobody was drinking it. And we focused on a lot of other clear spirits and, and and other packages. And then 
in 2015, we were kind of like, what are we doing at Bourbon's Back? And we're sitting on this amazing property with um, this limestone spring water source and just brick houses that you do not find outside of Kentucky and Indiana. It's like, why aren't we using this? So that's when we decided we were going to buy new equipment and resurrect the process. And then um, Ben Holiday Bourbon was born. So definitely one of my questions was going to be, you know, why stop distilling in 85? It, it makes sense. That was the clear spirit boom, you know, for the next 20 years. It really was that. Yeah. But it, but officially though, the distillation, let's say never really stopped. It's been continuously operating as far as, you know, maybe, yeah. Cause you had the pro we'll get to the prohibition thing in a second, but so so distillation has never stopped on the site, just bourbon production did for about 30 years. Yes and no. Um, this is also kind of a complicated, complicated question because um, so we have been, we have been in business for a hundred over 170 years, but or 160 years, excuse me. But there was a time where whenever we stopped distilling in the eighties, we actually weren't distilling any other products on site. So we were still, um, importing a lot of products and distributing them as a supplier. And we were also doing a lot of blending and bottling, um, with our state of the art bottling facility, but there was actually no distillation taking place on site. So it was pretty incredible that we took on that investment and got all that new equipment to really get it started again. It was, um, we kind of, Kyle, you have to tell me if, if this is wrong, but we really just kind of had to look back at our records and there were some employees that had been there to distill in the past, correct? Yep. Yep. There were still a couple on site that had distilled bourbon. And yeah, that is true. I like, I, I can't, we had a different owner at the time and that ownership group uh, did choose to shift their bourbon production. They had another facility uh, in Illinois. And so they shifted it to that. Uh, they also had other production facilities making other, uh, you know, clear spirits. And so that was the ownership then. And then in the nineties, when we went private, that, that kind of disappeared, but we had that partnership uh, still with them. So the distillation on site didn't happen, but uh, for, for any of the other products, but yeah, when, when we wanted to bring it back in 2015, we had, uh, he was one of them, especially uh, was helpful in the process. Um, Dennis was his name and he, he had been around uh, back when they were distilling back in the eighties and he had just started his career kind of in that, that time frame. Um, so he had, he had worked in the, the still house back then knew, knew the process, knew the records kind of knew what, where everything was, but uh, he transitioned when they shut that down, he transitioned to doing stainless steel welding. Um, and so he stayed with our company. He welded up a lot of pipes for our bottle shop. He did all the, the maintenance work and he transitioned to that area um, and then fast forward 2015, uh, he, he essentially helped put that place back together. So he was welding up pipes to bring back the, the, the uh, sorry, can't talk, bring back the distillery. And so then he also kind of was a, a part of that, bringing back the records and looking at all those lab things that he did, you know, he didn't necessarily know everything, but he was able to point us in the right direction and give us clues. And, and that was a big part of bringing it back. And so it was a lot of, you know, whether it was digging in with talking with him, uh, other employees that we could find around the area that maybe still didn't work for us, but were around, um, or, or just in general, all the records that you have, I get it. when it's a highly regulated industry, like what mm -hmm. we live in, uh, that the government made everyone keep very strict records. 
if they wanted to change their mash bill for a different season back in the day, they would have had to send a letter to the federal government saying, hey, we would like permission to run 32 batches of, uh, you know, bourbon using this mash bill and it would list it out. And so you could go back in and it was very easy to kind of look at that. And so, yeah, it was resurrecting the past um, through every single way that we could uh, at, at the time. So, yeah, it was a big puzzle that had to be put together. Um, and I think, you know, overall, uh, not every answer, uh, we, we didn't get every answer to, to the puzzle, but we, I think, got it very, very close and very uh, proud of what we're at. And I think it's, you know, as close as we possibly could to bring back the past. And when between Dennis and the rest and the rest of the records that you have, I guess the question could go two ways. One way is, you know, were you able to recreate the structure, the stills and all of that as it was, or maybe that answer is moot. And, you know, what changes did you make in recreating the structure? Yeah. So when, when looking at it from the core of producing bourbon, so we thankfully still had the limestone spring on site that, uh, that they had been using and that had been charted by Lewis and Clark. So we, we had that limestone spring water with that cistern uh, holding, you know, what is it? 35, 45,000 gallons of water. Uh, and so we, we had that available. So we, we started with that. That's the beginning. Um, from there, it was a lot of uh, bring back the concept and as much as we could. So uh, two cooker system, um, which was important. That was what we used to do. So we cook the, the large grains and the small grains separately. We handle those independently. And so, you know, the large grain for us, because we're making bourbon, is always corn. Uh, that's the primary grain in our mash bill. And then in that small cooker, we, uh, we take those uh, either wheat or rye and handle those independently and, and try to extract and, and get as much flavor from those as we possibly can. Uh, so that was one concept we brought back. Um, from there, we, we had to, we'll start just kind of go down the line of making bourbon. Uh, so the whisk or the, the yeast, uh, we didn't have a proprietary strain that we could recover. Um, 30 years was a long time. And in addition to that, prior to them shutting down in the eighties, they, they actually switched from propagating their own yeast on site to purchasing yeast uh, in the seventies. And so at that point it was, Hey, what can we do that creates a, what, what, what yeast can we find that's commercially available that produces a congener profile as pop, as close as possible to what we were. And so that was the goal. We, we went out and found a bunch of different yeast strains and we, we, uh, propagated them on the, the different mash and, and, and grew them and fermented and, and kind of just did as close of a, uh, replication as possible. It, it would be perfect. I would love to, you know, find that yeast strain. I've looked, uh, there's nothing on site that like, I wish that I could find in a back of a warehouse somewhere, an old propagation tank or something, but, uh, haven't had any such luck. So that was, that was kind of one interpretation, I guess, at that point, um, in terms of fermentation, we knew how long they fermented. Um, and so we, we went back with that as well. Uh, same fermentation period, uh, conditions, um, style, uh, and then from, from distillation standpoint, we had an old still on site. Uh, it was a 36 inch column still and uh, a doubler uh, paired with it as well. And it was, we had actually purchased it used uh, back uh, 
back in the day. And so it, this still had been around for a while. And it was one where we brought in uh, Vendome, the, the group from there, and we, we had them look at it, but it, it couldn't be revived. It was, it was past its prime. And so unfortunately, uh, at that point, had to make the decision to buy a new still. Um, and so we went with, again, as close as possible. It's not the 36 inch column still like what we used to have. We, we went with an 18, knowing one reason for that, or the primary reason was that back, back in the past, they would also distill only during the winter season. Uh, and then they would be shut down during the summer. And so we essentially have the same capacity, but we're doing it year round rather than just having it uh, done in a, a couple, three or four month period. And so uh, we didn't need that 36 inch column still. Uh, from there, went with the same type of barrel, char three barrel uh, from the same manufacturer, uh, independent state in Lebanon, Missouri, and then uh, aging still in the same rick houses. And so really we, we brought back as much as we could. The, the process itself uh, was all intended to be as close as we possibly could with today's equipment with, you know, a cooling tower rather than using limestone spring water to cool off your fermentation. Stuff like that uh, was kind of bringing it back to the modern era rather than the true uh, old school way of making it. Uh, maybe we'll do a batch or two the old style way, uh, but, um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that we had the best technology available to make consistent uh, top quality bourbon when we when we brought it back. I mean, I just got back a few days ago now from Jack Daniels. So we're talking size differentials. You don't get much bigger than that. And yep, yep. Um, they're talking about how, you know, they have their spring on site. And mm -hmm. for the yeast, they used to propagate the yeast and then they'd put it in a jug and put it in the spring water because it was 55, 56 degrees year round. Yep. Uh, they've also shifted to a newer method using negative 80 freezers and all that, yep. but you know, there's always throwbacks whenever always. we can, yeah. whenever you can do it. Yep. So in, I guess the next thing is going to be kind of creating a profile. So going back to what used to be created, I mean, did you have access to extant bottles um, of the distillate? And if so, how far back were you able to go? Uh, yeah, so we, we did have bottles um, on site. And so it depends on which stage uh, we had. So we have a bunch of finished product and bottles that were, you know, finished bourbon packaged goods um, throughout the various years. Uh, the only lab standard uh, that I know about um, was we, we had ones that were the their quality control standards for the new make, uh, one year, three year, five year, uh, seven and 10, I think is what it was broken down. And so we had a bunch of different, different samples that were their standard. That's what they, when they tasted or compared against, it was always that. And so, uh, we had that, um, I believe that was from the sixties, uh, was when it was from. And so, um, mostly, mostly full, they probably hadn't been opened in uh, a long time. So hopefully not much oxidative reactions had occurred during that time. There was probably some, but they in general tasted, uh, pretty, pretty similar to the other finished products that we had tried. And so felt pretty confident in that, but yeah, it, we, we had that available, not a ton, uh, not a bunch around. Uh, and so it was pretty, pretty limited quantities. Uh, but then again, had the finished product, they, we had quite a few of one of the old brands, BJ Holiday Private Keep, um, and those have diminished over the years. They've been in a, 
the executive office space. And it started out with quite a few. Um, and I think I just saw there was five left. So, you know, the, there's fewer and fewer of those ones remaining. Don't know where they're so, going. <laughs> so if you're looking to steal one, like, you know, don't, don't wait on it kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so with the, okay. So we're able to kind of, to have examples of it, to recreate as much as possible. What, in going between the older those older samples from the 60s, including the new make, everything from the new make to the finished products, and what you've got now, skipping ahead a bit, mm-hmm. what do you think is the biggest difference between them? And what was the hardest bridge to cross? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so I think that ultimately, well, they kind of the, the the answer I think will lead into itself. And so we had a lot of information uh, about the still house itself. So we knew a lot about how they were producing it there. What we didn't have, we have so two traditional rick houses on site that we age in. So uh, they're both, you know, seven story structures, uh, total capacity, like 21,000 barrels on site. And so it's very traditional, not heated, not cooled, got windows uh, built in. One was built in the third, when was the warehouse built, Jordan? Uh, 1930. 30. And then the other was right after prohibition, the 42 or something like that. Um, Close. Okay. See, (laughs) there we go. Uh, So see warehouse was built then. And so they've been around for a while, uh, but we don't have all the records of what product was aged for how long in which floor, which tier, any of the information about the aging itself. And so that was something that was a challenge. We have a few Rick books where it's like, okay, we pulled from here for this product and here for this product, but it wasn't universally known. Um, In addition, I think they also didn't really think as much in that sense. I think it was a lot of back, back in the day, especially when you were closer to that 85 mark, when you just wanted to sell anything, it was Let's, let's get what's of age, let's dump it, let's get it down to lower proof so that people don't know that it has, you know, bourbon in this. Um, and then let's let's bottle it. And so it wasn't a, a kind of, you didn't care as much about those floors. That Those rick houses, while they're, they're critical to what we're doing, um, we, we don't have that longstanding history with what aged where and what does the best in each location. So that's something we have to figure out as we go. And that's what we're learning um, as we, as we uh, continue to age these products, it was um, complete, you know, you just fill it up and let's, let's see. And so uh, that's been a part of it, but I think the the biggest difference is that we're kind of embracing that. And, and it's both a difference in what we're doing as well as I think a difference in the consumer uh, of, you know, when we embrace that, it, it means that we're putting on the label, uh, where those barrels are selected for each batch. Um, we're talking about the, that rickhouse and how those floors differ and how we can kind of embrace those floors and create a slightly different bourbon each time. And so that's a big part of what we're doing, um, both in the Ben Holiday bourbon, which is our original mash bill, and the Holiday Soft Red Wheat. We put full transparency on the label. Where are those barrels coming from? We want to talk about that. We don't necessarily know all the answers. I'm not going to admit that I do, um, but I think it's it's experimenting. It's seeing where it goes. What's what's everything tastes like, and I think it's you know for the consumers to see that. I think it's a lot of fun. We're not 
we're not just trying to hide behind things. We're not just trying to blend our way into making exactly the same flavor profile every time. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just not the route we wanted to go. And so we wanted to embrace that. And so that's, I think to me, probably the biggest difference between back in the day versus now is kind of that focus in on the aging process and, and that brick house. Sure. So I'm going to throw back a little bit now to even back in the, back farther in the history. So taking a wider lens, what does kind of distilling in Missouri look like? Like has you know, some states we talked to, there's nothing they were doing, maybe brandy, maybe think where they were doing more beer, Kentucky, Tennessee, obviously you've got Virginia, you've got long histories. So what is Missouri's history like in that respect? Jordan, do you have a idea on this one? Yes. I can make uh, stuff up, but I don't really <laughs> honestly know. So. so we have actually kind of tried to look into this ourselves. Um, we have partnered with Michael Beach, um, bourbon historian, um, to try to figure out. So we are DSP Mo5 is the number assigned to our distillery, but we can't find who DSP Mo1 to 4 was. So the chances are that um, it's likely that it was us, which sounds kind of strange, um, but there's no record of anybody else before us. So there could have been, um, maybe it was the Blue Springs Distillery that was the first name actually of the Holiday family. And maybe those records have since changed. We don't know, um, but we do know that distilling in Missouri has for sure taken place since 1856. We are the oldest distillery in Missouri. So uh, for a long time, there really, as far as I know, there weren't, it, it wasn't a very active distilling state. But now, if you were to go apply for um, a DSP in Missouri, it would be, tell me if I'm wrong, Kyle, like 2000 something at this point, like there's been that many wow. registrations. Yeah, like, I think I've seen some of the ones we've uh, worked with and talked to. Uh... DSP mode 20,093, I think is the one that I was thinking about, but yeah. Uh, oh, and 20, I, yeah, so a few, <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. It's it's a lot. we really embrace that DSP mo five. You'll see it on the back of all of our bottles. Um, and, and it's really, if you, if you truly kind of dial in on what that means, that's just kind of another, um, nod to our history and just kind of really shows how long we've been around, which is pretty cool. I guess the, those DSPs were, DSP was right after the Civil War, if I'm correct, right? I believe so. Yeah. Because I think Jack is number one, and then like Heaven Hills number, there is something else. They're Kentucky after yeah. Prohibition. So two different yeah. numbers there. So, right. 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 Yeah. So, so. I, I have no idea how those are assigned. I, I know. <laughs> Michael Veach, he, he talked about it before, and then I still don't know. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from, it's a lot. From the distilling sense in the state of Missouri, I, one thing I, I, again, this is me, make, I'll hopefully admit I'm making this up basically, but speculating, I mean, it, you you do think like it's a, it's a ag state, right? Like this is also a place where corn is grown. It's not like Kentucky's uh, original in that thought. Uh, and we're also a border state to Kentucky. And so if you you think back, like Ben and David came up from Kentucky, uh, I would venture to guess that there was others from Kentucky that came up here and uh, 
probably had a similar thought process. Um, it's not part of our history, so I wouldn't know necessarily, but my guess would be a similar of you have more of probably farmer distillers type of thing, uh, mm -hmm. rather than the, you know, commercial enterprise, uh, necessarily. Um, because Ben Holiday would have, and I'll, I'll let Jordan expand on this, but Ben Holiday being the stagecoach King would have had at least a way to, uh, distribute his, his bourbon as well. Yes. Right. Um, so yeah, as we mentioned that Ben being the serial entrepreneur that he was, so he was actually the founder of the Overland or he owned the Overland stage lines. And so that was um, moving people and provisions out West. So if you think about it, being the businessman that he was, what bourbon do you think was heading West on those stage lines? We right. don't have proof of that either, but chances are it was uh, Ben and David's bourbon, which is also really neat to think about. Yeah. yeah. Fun to see if, you know, there's a, a museum in, in Portland where I know Ben ended up at the end of his life. They end up finding a bottle there that was brought along with them. That would be cool. That could be fun. Yeah. So in the, because you have this long history, it's also fun to talk about being a Missouri representative in this case, because you have that long history. Mm. Um, and the, the next place I want to jump to is during Prohibition. So during Prohibition, uh, at that point, we were owned by Shawhan. I might be saying that wrong. Shawhan, yes. George Shawhan. Shawhan. <clears throat> so it would have been the Shawhan distillery at that point. And um, it was allowed to distill during Prohibition for medicinal purposes. Now, most places were not allowed to do that. Um, have you found any any reason or records as to either why or how they were able to continue to do so? Oh goodness! Again, I could I could kind of speculate on this as well, but because we have always said that we could produce for medicinal purposes, but there mm -hmm. were only I believe four or five licenses issued throughout the entire country to do so, right. and mm -hmm. um, I I'm not so sure that we were physically distilling but we were bottling and distributing. We know that for sure. Um, but that is also kind of a gray area. And it really is crazy with our large history, how much we've really had to kind of dig back for how much was lost. And we're always so hesitant to say this for sure happened and this for sure happened when we haven't seen it fully written and logged anywhere in writing. So, um, and we aren't one of those companies that really likes to make up a marketing story. Like it's so real that we don't want to tamper with that. So, but we it's do appreciate have, it for sure. Yeah. And we do have bottles and history of packages that same for medicinal purposes, which is just fascinating in itself. Um, right. Yeah. The people could go and fill that prescription and get what they needed for their medicine. And yeah. It was, it's most fascinating to me for, for the reason, one of the reasons you just mentioned is that when you think about those four or five, maybe six uh, licenses that were available, the ones who got it were like old Forrester got it. Jim Beam didn't. Mm -hmm. um, Heaven Hill didn't exist at that point. You know, there, there are these brands that even then were the Titans of the industry that didn't get those licenses. And that yet you guys did under the name at the time. Mm -hmm. So that would be a fascinating rabbit hole to go under. And as you're pointing out, there are a lot of rabbit holes to go down in this case. 
and you probably couldn't get a better partner than than Mike Veach to do so. But yeah, we love working with Mike. He's he's fantastic. I've learned so much from him every time he's visited us twice now. And we've just like tried to really, because if you're going to find out something historical, like who else are you going to go to besides Mike Veach, if you want, yeah. you know, the good stuff. So yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive and, and very fascinating. Yeah, this is just a side note. I'm, I'm um, envisioning a project about Lou Rosensteel and Shenley, and I would really love to write a history on them or just do some research on them. And there's almost nothing on them, but I'm going to, try to reach out to Mike, see what I can get. Also, Laura Patrizio, who's fantastic with just Pennsylvania and rye history and American whiskey history, whiskey history. There we go as well. Um, I haven't even had anything to drink today and my I'm spilling over my words, but yeah, I, I love the historical aspects and, you know, we'll, we'll move on from them a little bit, but that stood out to me. The fact that at one point you were owned by MGP. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Many years. Yeah. And when, uh, well, they're still based in Atchison, Kansas, but when they were more known for the Atchison, Kansas, as opposed to their uh, Indiana plant, shall we say, Lawrenceburg plant. So, uh, you know, moving, I guess, closer to the more recent history, the, the last historical question would be of the records that you have and the bottles that you have, was there a bottled and bond whiskey being produced? Like, was that a feature of Holiday? Not as much from what I've seen. And so that's where uh, I would say that is yet another kind of more of a a current interpretation of it because, uh, again, the consumer uh, of today Mm -hmm. versus back then. But um, I I have seen a few uh, ceramic jugs that were bonded back in the, I can't remember what year they were we have a bunch of old like decanters or a bunch of old different products around. And I've only seen like two, two or three maybe that have been bonded. Uh, so it, it wasn't a big part of what we were doing. No, it was a lot of the time, again, back in the eighties, it was a lower proof. And so, you know, the, the standard release was, you know, 80.6 and the premium release was 86.6. Uh, and the super premium release was 90.6. And so it was very, you know, the low proof, um, type of thing. Um, but yeah, not, not as much the bottled and bond piece. And I think that was a big part when we, when we brought it back and, uh, is truthfully telling that story that we, we have an awesome story, an amazing story, and it's a real story. And, but then also that we're not, we're not just making, uh, making or taking the story and then and using another person's product we we wanted to bring it back and so that was a big part of the the process and not sourcing anybody else's liquid uh there is nothing wrong with that i completely understand the business model uh we're lucky in the sense that we didn't have to do that um and so we just wanted to to speak to that that it was bottled and bond and this this was our product so you get to the early 2010s let's say um it's coming up on you know, you're, you're past 150 years since the distillery is founded and starting to think about, you know, what if we resurrected this bourbon? What if we started distilling bourbon? It's been almost, I guess it would be 25 to 30 years at that point since you've done it. What were those conversations like when you were, you know, talking to not just the, you know, the team that we were producing, but also the team above you would be like, yeah, we have this new product that we want to bring on. Um, yeah, what, what were those conversations like? 
Well, I don't think either of us were part of those, actually. So we were uh, brought up, both of us uh, were brought on more because of the bourbon uh, wanting to exist. And I, I think it was a lot of, as a company, uh, our, our current president, um, Mick Harris, he wanted to shift more into premium products. He wanted to shift more into uh, things beyond the value goods. And, and so that was something he's been working on for a while now. Um, but he's a bourbon drinker and I think that was also a piece, uh, to it. And then the, the thought of, okay, we have this history. We still have these rick houses. Um, a previous president, president wanted to tear those down as a side note, because they were, a, a insurance risk and liability and all of that. And thankfully that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, we, we wanted to bring it, he wanted to bring it back because of, you know, that history and the focus on premium products. And so, uh, that was the thought and that was kind of how it began back in the day. And so, uh, how, how he pitched it to all the shareholders, I don't know exactly. No, uh, that would have been, I, I would have enjoyed, uh, to be, be part of that conversation. Fair enough. Then, then I'll flip it a little bit and say, what was the, what were the conversations like bringing on the two of you and how were you convinced to, to join and, and make this product? Well, I think I, Kyle, when did you join? Mine was 2015. You were probably shortly right thereafter. Yeah, I was 16 with the bourbon. Yeah. Um, so I actually started as a marketing and sales rep just on the premium side. Um, I did a lot of promotion for 360 Vodka. So mm-hmm. at that time when I was hired, bourbon, really, I didn't hear any talk at all. Um, it was very, very little at that point. And then a few months into my employment, um, started to hear about it. And then there was the day that they dropped the still in through the roof of the original still house. And we just sat there looking out and watching this happen, which was pretty incredible. Um, just this massive crane bringing it in. And then, um, yeah. And then I remember, I do remember the very first barrel that was filled. I got to, to see that and take photos and that was pretty cool. But even at, you know, in my late twenties, I didn't know anything about bourbon. I had no idea. And and for the next several years, as they were making it and um, we were starting to age it and I still didn't really know much about it. I knew it was coming and I helped get the tour started of the facility, even though we didn't have anything to taste yet. We were still um, trying to really improve the property and show people what we were up to. So and then uh, just in recent years, I've started spending more time like learning about it and hanging out with Kyle, learning the science side of it, or at least listening to the science side of it and trying to understand it. Um, but it truly is such an art and a craft. And um, yeah, so I kind of went from neutral grain spirits all the way to like what I would call the good stuff now. So not that vodka is not good, but you know, there's just a lot more that goes into this piece. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a hardcore vodka sucks person. It it's not my thing. I don't enjoy it. I want to drink for the taste, but nah, I won't crap on it. It's not my thing. Yeah, um, no. it's it's good. It serves its purpose, that's for sure. Exactly. And let's be honest. I mean, from a business perspective, for most companies, it's also paying a lot of bills that help to, you know, keep the doors open and the lights on while the bourbon ages. So uh, yeah. we we can't look down at our look down our noses at it too much because we want that bourbon at the end of the day oh no yeah i mean we still sell a lot of vodka <laughs> it's it's a very big piece of our business um but yeah it's, it, it also is very fascinating how different every spirit is you know and all the regulations that it takes and how you can make vodka in a day but if you're going to make a bourbon how are you going to make it how long are you going to let it 
sit and, and all of those things. It's just, it's very fascinating. And I think we're very fortunate because, um, we do get to work with so many different products. It's not always just bourbon all the time. So that actually does keep things pretty, pretty interesting for us because there are so many aspects to the different products that we have in our premium brands portfolio. And so I'm going to come back to that, but I want to give Kyle a chance to uh, describe yeah. his entry. Yeah. So I, uh, I was uh, somewhat late to the party, but I was kind of more brought on. It had gotten start, everything had gotten started back up and, and my background is more in the science side of things. And so uh, I have a bachelor's and master's in biological and agricultural engineering, uh, knowing that I wanted to do, do some sort of uh, value added product with grain. Uh, I came, I grew up on a farm um, and I wanted to make sure I stayed in the agriculture adjacent field. Dad told me not to come back and uh, and farm because he hated. Uh, he we were going through a drought for a couple years, and he was just very very negative on farming. And I think uh, if I called him tonight, he'd probably still be negative on farming. He's ready to retire next year, uh, but he he told me to not do that. And so I just wanted to stay still in the ag field. And so that's kind of how I got in the industry. Uh, my master's research was in fermentation, and and I had moved up. Uh, with with my wife uh, up here to Atchison, Kansas, and I was making um, neutral spirits and uh, then found out that there was a bourbon facility uh, not too far away from here. And, and they were posting a job and and went there and it was just, uh, you know, you you I didn't know what to expect. I like to drink bourbon. Uh, I definitely like to drink it more than I do, you know, vodka, but I was making neutral spirits and it was a good job. And uh, and so it was uh yeah, went over there and was just blown away by the facility, everything about it, uh, the 160 acres and all the historic, you know, the buildings and the, the rick houses and the limestone spring. It, it just blew me away. And so it was immediately like, OK, yeah, I want to be here. I want to make bourbon here. And and so that was my kind of uh, entry into it. And then it was from there, just kind of taking it over, getting it going day to day, trying to figure out how we can make this consistently, how we can uh, kind of optimize it and, and, and keep it uh as running as smoothly as possible. We didn't want any deviations or any upsets in the, the still house. And then also any new product development or any new, new experiments, anything like that, kind of, kind of taking that and running with it. And so that was, I was hired, I, I'm going to say primarily just for bourbon. Uh, and it, it was a uh, luck that kind of my path lined up here. I, I admit that fully all the time because not often do you think um, in kind of just north of Kansas City that there's going to be a bourbon distillery open up that has every piece of the, the bourbon uh, history. And so it was just a, a, a lucky aspect for me. I don't know again, if that answers your question or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, it's a, it's a good story. And I, I have definitely heard similar ones in terms of the, especially the conversations that you would have had with your dad about like, don't come back to farm to be adjacent, but you know, yep. be out of the field. I've heard similar things from, from people with similar backgrounds in, in distillation, like, okay, so I'm going to go study bioengineering or fermentation studies, or um, even some who went to wood management or, or sommeliers, you know? Yep. So there is something there. And I like, I do like finding those clusters of stories. There's also the cluster of people who came from the wine industry into into whiskey and then so very few or fewer at least who came from the beer industry into whiskey even though 
you'd think that would be a more natural transition. And yet, yeah. you know, I, I found that there's more on the wine to whiskey than the beer to whiskey side. But um, anyway. Yeah I, can, so, I can, yeah. I don't know a ton that have made the beer that there, I know a few, but definitely not a ton. That's for sure. Yeah. It's weird. It's, it just is that natural progression. You're just making a beer and distilling it. Um, granted, not every distiller's beer is, it's all technically potable, I would say, but you don't want to drink all of it. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Um, That's for but, sure. Yeah. But uh, so, so Jordan, jumping back to the marketing side for a second, it, in doing the research for this episode, I noticed something that I did want to ask about and feel free to say you either don't know or can't answer. That's always respected on this show. Uh, I did notice that there's a separation website wise and, and marketing wise at least on the consumer side between McCormick distilling and the vodka, tequila, azules, uh, liqueurs, all of that. And Ben holiday bourbon. And I just wanted to dive into the, the thought process behind that. And yeah, just from there. Yes. This is always kind of a tough one to explain. I don't know that I do the best job, but um, so we became McCormick distilling in 1942 that's when our name changed to McCormick Distilling. And um, McCormick Distilling is still very much alive and well today. Um, we do have our McCormick family brands. And then we have, um, I believe at this point, we have almost 70 total different brands under our umbrella. If you really look like break down all the different flavors that we have of vodka and, mm-hmm. um, and that be McCormick and 360. And so we have a lot under our umbrella. But I, whenever we started... Um, bringing back the idea that we were going to make this bourbon, we really wanted to rededicate the site, not only to say we are doing the process here to really separate and let people know that it was coming from this site and maybe not sourcing like we had done previously in the past. Um, And also just to kind of ramp up that premium side. Um, The current ownership group back in when they purchased the company in the early 90s, they were the ones that really started this innovative process to think outside the box of, of outside of value brands. So I don't know if you've heard of a brand called Tequila Rose. Um, maybe looking, yep, just a little bit of Tequila Rose. And that was actually a, a huge, um, a, a big product innovation that kind of paved the way for a lot of other cream products to follow. It was actually the very first cream product um, that wasn't an Irish cream. So the first um, cream liqueur, I guess I should say outside of um, an Irish cream. So that innovation has kind of just built over the years. And so it really was just a separation between this is where we're going on the holiday side versus McCormick but it's all one family. And now I don't know if I'm answering the question. <laughs> but, um, no, yeah. No, I, I think you did. And if, if I can kind of throw it back at you and how I heard it and understood it is that, yes, it's the same company. It's the same family, but specifically because not only are you reviving this brand, but you're doing it in-house again after 30 years, you're, and any number of things that kind of come with launching a new brand. And I, in some ways you can call it new, even though it's a revival, you can call it, you know, um, because in 85, you wouldn't have had a website for it. I, exactly. think. I think there's like one or two websites from 85. I don't know. Anyway. Um, but uh, so I understand it from, especially from a consumer facing standpoint of separating it. And 
this also goes back to something that, um, you know, Kyle, you've mentioned several times about you have a different consumer base now. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you had a website in 85 and you were introducing the whiskey and bourbon that would have been created then, it would have been more towards the lower proof, yeah. um, targeting the, the clear spirits crowd. Mm-hmm. But today you've got a crowd that wants to know what rickhouse, what floors, what, <clears throat> pardon me, what mash bill, the years, the you know temperature fluctuations you have in a couple of the descriptions, you have the evaporation rates. Um, now that's getting to the really nerdy side and that's where I thrive, but uh, <laughs> yep. you know, I, I can see why it's, it's not, and this is to, to be clear from my perspective, it's not about hiding the connection. It's just that this is new and you're serving a different clientele than you were before. And that, and that you were from the McCormick side, as opposed to the specifically holiday side. Yeah. But it was something I, I noticed and definitely wanted to ask about. Yeah, I think that definitely, I mean, that sums it up, but we're taking steps and we're doing things with, with the holiday bourbon and with some of the other premium products like five farms, Irish cream, but uh, where it's just completely different than what we would have done in the past uh, because of the consumers and because of what we want to create with these products. And so it is just, we want to respect that and we want to make sure that it's very, you know, uh, from, from the beginning, just kind of its own thing that stands alone because we are putting so much into this, that the bourbon, it is its own thing. It's the holiday distillery at, at our facility, but um, obviously ownership group, you know, that, that matters. It's, but it's just like, if you think about any, any type of, uh, product, I bet almost any industry would have a similar story. It's just, um, with the, with the different things, whether it's bottled water or cheese or whatever, you name it. So, uh, this month's impact spotlight is on white Heather and McNair's blended whiskeys and the tales of the two men who made these venerable brands, what they are. The first is Billy Walker, a 2021 Icons of Whiskey Hall of Fame inductee and owner of the Glenallachy, another Impex brand and a recent podcast guest. Billy has over five decades of experience in the Scotch world. With White Heather unshow filtered blended whiskey, Billy returns to his roots. White Heather was relaunched in 2021 with a 21 year old blended Scotch, and is now joined by a 15 year old edition. Both feature 47% single malt in their blend and draw from top stocks in Isla, Speyside, and the Highlands. The 15-year-old is matured in American and Spanish oak casks for a beautiful blend of honey, malt, wispy smoke, and candied citrus. The 21-year-old is matured in American oak and cherry butts for 18 years, before a final three years in PX and Oloroso punchins. This is plus time in medium toast and medium char Appalachian oak for a final burst of sweetness and complexity. The second story is of Harvey McNair. McNair was the essence of a Victorian Scotsman. He accomplished many trades and travels in his lifetime, and more than anything, he loved and championed the natural, unadulterated color of whiskey. Pure gold, as he called it. Pure gold was the foundation of the whiskey blends he created. Today's McNair Uncho filtered blended whiskey, thanks to Billy Walker, honors Harvey's legacy, marrying peated malt, highland, Isla, and Speyside with Glenallachy Spirit, this is a blend for the peat lovers. To find all of these whiskeys and any Impex product, visit a premium spirits retailer near you. You can also visit Impex at www.impexbev.com or email office at impexbev.com for those harder-to-find releases.
The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. All my sense. So moving, continuing along the timeline, you're, it's 2015, now 2016, you both are on board. Uh, and I don't remember if I mentioned this on air or not, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself on air, but you know, I've been binging the holiday happy hour podcast to get even more you know, information and stories and such to, to talk about. And one of them, oh, and actually I should mention, that's a, a distillery exclusive podcast that's made by you guys about the distillery, hosted by Jordan. Kyle, you're a frequent guest. I don't think you're on every episode, but you're a frequent guest. Um, and it's, it's a fun listen. Like some distillery podcasts are, I'm going to be honest, very dry. Yeah. Um, an ironic term for distillery podcast, but they're very dry. <laughs> uh, but no, yours are, they're fun. They're, they keep moving. They're talking about fun things. So, um, <clears throat> so in listening to them, one of the stories that I came across was that when you were looking to create this new bourbon, figure out what profile you wanted, uh, two things stood out. The first one was that you anticipated the first release being closer to three years and that it just kept getting pushed back because like, oh, this could get, better and better and finally you got to six years and like okay this is great right there and there's also the input of um sommelier doug frost from kansas city so i'd love to hear uh a little bit more about how doug and the age getting pushed back or the release date getting pushed back kind of seemed to dovetail together into your story yeah so they're they're kind of not related, but are uh, a little bit in, in some sense. So one, we, we, uh, early on at the 18 month mark, Doug Frost, uh, we, we called him up and brought him in, uh, to, to try everything. You know, it was, Hey, we need to find someone with obviously the, uh, experience in this industry and he's master sommelier, master of wine. So he's one of what at the time was one of four in the world with those credentials and just down the street. And, he also does consulting in the spirits world. He's a judge at all these international spirits competitions, created a uh, beverage alcohol resource, I believe is what it's called, the bar program. And uh, so he was a big part of kind of uh, a lot of different areas in spirits. So it's like, well, why would we not bring him up? And so did at the 18 month mark, he sat in the boardroom with, I think, 47 or 48 different samples in front of him of things that we just wanted feedback on. So uh, various floors, various you know, whether it was a fermentation type of deviation that happened, uh, could he pick that out or, or, uh, various things, uh, in the process and, and just overall quality type of questions as well. And so, uh, gave him all those samples. He sat in that boardroom for, I don't know, call it, uh, four hours. And then, you know, everyone went in and was like, Hey, uh, so should we like shut down right now? Like, are we doing things? Okay. And, uh, he, he said, no, you you guys are on the right path. Like things are, great, uh, gave us, you know, notes for each one, but, uh, ultimately kind of gave that encouragement to, to the board, to make the overall, the group that like, Hey, you are on the right path. Uh, this is as good, if not better than a lot of other spirits I've tried of similar age, uh, keep, keep it up, um, type of type of message. Um, at the three year mark, uh, they, they, the kind of, you mentioned it earlier, the whiskey business is a terrible, uh, financial model. Um, of putting things away and just letting it sit. And I, I think from the beginning, that was the thought of 
three years, like that's a pretty big investment. We can probably find something. In the past, we had seen some three-year bourbons, uh, and it's like, okay, we can we can probably figure it out at that point. And so I, I had gone through the rickhouse and uh, was tasked with finding the best barrel uh, for them to present, you know, for, it was pr presented to the shareholders. Um, and ultimately they kind of got to taste it and decide where they're at. And um, so I found barrel number 47 um, and had presented that and it was very good. Uh, and ended up going back to barrel 47 a lot throughout, um, throughout our time. But at that point, you know, I think they just said, okay, well, we're, we're close. Well, why don't we just go another year? Then we can be bottled and bond. Let's just go ahead and wait. And uh, and then it was oh, each year kind of the same story. I would go back, I'd get a couple samples for the, the shareholder meeting and I'd present it to them and let ultimately them decide because it's not my money that's sitting in that rickhouse. So, uh, and then it was every year, like, okay, let's, let's wait until at the four year mark, let's wait until five. And then it's at this point, we're close enough. Six years was always our historic sweet spot. Let's just go ahead and wait until six. Um, and I think that probably drove Jordan nuts and uh, the team, especially marketing and on the tourism side too, because everyone kept coming in. When's the bourbon? I thought you said it was going to be three years. I thought you said it was going to be next year. How come it's not released yet? What's going on? And it was just a, a constant. Let's let's just wait. We we we. You only get one first shot at releasing a bourbon, and if we can wait, let's wait. Knowing that six years was always the kind of entry. Uh, point for our, our distillery six to 10 is kind of the sweet spot. And we knew that if we could make it to that, uh, that we'd be making a bourbon that kind of most represented what, what we were doing in our history. And then yes, Doug, uh, bringing it back to him. So he, uh, came back at the five and a half year mark when we had already decided we were going to wait for six. Um, and I had, I had a pretty good job for five and a half years and I wanted to keep it. Uh, so I made sure that I brought someone in that uh, could help me in that aspect. So, you know, we go from making bourbon all the time and putting it away to now we have to actually create different, uh, we, we have to put all these barrels together. We have to figure out how it's going to work. And this is something that, uh, frankly, I was, I was terrified of. It was a new process, just like everything in this was new. Uh, but this was going into a bottle for everyone to publicly judge. So that was majorly terrifying. Um, and so just had him come out and again, similar thing. We had a ton of different samples, um, out there, tons of different options that I had made up and just kind of got his opinions and got his thoughts. And, and he went through and screened everything and, and gave us notes and feedback. And so that helped, uh, early on to hold off. Um, but then also helped again later, uh, as we wanted to kind of get to the point where it was going into the bottle. Sitting down in a boardroom with 47, 48 samples. Doesn't sound like a too bad of a day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, not sure if you'd remember it, but it does sound like <laughs> not too bad a day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, he's also, he's got a master Psalm, so he's used to the taste and spit method. So he's probably yep. not actually imbibing that much of it during the time. Yeah. So yeah, he definitely uh, was pretty good about that. We were just sitting yeah. in the corner with a glass and like, wait, what, that's what we're supposed to do? No. <laughs> I I know that feeling. Watching some master tasters and master blenders, yeah. looking at samples, I, I'm pretty happy with my tasting ritual. Yeah. But some of them, sometimes you learn something new, and other times you're just intimidated. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, 
I can imagine what being in a room with like uh like a Richard Patterson from the Dalmore kind of thing. Oh yeah. yeah where like be... the guy's the guy's nose is insured. You know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. His nose and Beyonce's legs, they're all insured. Like that's <laughs> that's ridiculous. But yeah, hey, that's what it um and that's why you need a 50 year old bottling. Anyway. Uh so <laughs> when you finally got to that pardon me that six year and you're ready to bottle it it's coming up on mid 2022 in one of the episodes it might have even been the first episode of of the holiday happy hour it was kyle uh jordan of course you're hosting i think patrick was on there as well and all of you were reminiscing on how shocked you were at the reception and the initial demand Yep. And I'd I'd love to just go back to that point last year. You know, what what led to that first bottling? You know, did you I guess well let me let me change that. Let me rephrase that. You were also shocked by the reception and have, by having that long line outside. So had you, you know, done the the work in the region to be like, hey, we're coming out with the bourbon, show up, and then we're just surprised that people did. <clears throat> or was it more that you were just shocked overall that people were standing online for three hours when you sold out in three hours of that first release? What was it like? Do you want me to go first, Kyle, or do you want to go first? Yeah, go for it. Um, so on the tourism and PR side, so we all, we're all a big team, but we all wear a lot of hats, right? So I've got my hands in tours and I've got my hands in the, the podcast and PR. And, and so we are all working together to make sure this, this launch is a success. And so when it came down to, um, planning for this day, we were doubted. Like there were certain people in our company that are like, ah, nobody's going to show up or, you know, we're not going to have a line. That's crazy. And we're like, yeah, you just wait and see. And then that morning we're looking at each other like, oh my gosh, what if nobody shows up? This is, this could be really bad. Um, so yeah, fast forward to that day and we were as prepared as we could be, right. We had everything stocked. We had our systems in place and whether, 10 people showed up or whether a thousand people showed up, we were as ready as we could have been. And then I think just when all those people did show up the, the satisfaction from that and all the hard work. And after pushing people off for years saying it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> Don't you know, kept telling them, come take a tour three years, four years, um, kept adding people to the list over the years. And so I've got this whole list of emails, sent that out to everybody and I, the, the coolest part though, is that you see people that have been around the welcome center for years coming by, even though we didn't have a product to sell, they were still coming to visit us, enjoy the grounds. And I just feel like that was, that was one of the highlights of my career so far, I think is, is that day and, and the launch in general. Yeah, I would echo everything that uh, Jordan said. And then I, I would also add uh, a little bit of a piece. So, or a couple different uh, comments as well. So one is that this was back, we were having, uh, like most everybody in the world at that time, uh, supply chain issues. And so it was, we had planned on this release at that time. Um, but we hadn't announced it because we didn't have bottles. We didn't have caps. Uh, we we're still 
getting the label, well, the labels were pretty much all done and ready to go. We had a local source for those, but we didn't truthfully, we just didn't have bottles. And it was every, every minute we were tracking them like, Hey, are they going to be here? When's the arrival date? What's going on? And so we finally got to the point where it's like, okay, we, we have to announce something. We had put out little teaser, teaser videos, right? Like where we just flashed the one bottle that we had uh, mocked up and like spun it and did some cool, whatever, uh, marketing type stuff that they do. Um, and, but that was a couple months out and that got good reception, but again, we hadn't announced it and it was, I don't know, what were we at like a month and month or month and a half before the release when we actually said, yeah, this is happening. Um, and so that was a big part of it too, is, you know, it wasn't like it was something that we had put a massive push behind because there was still so much uncertainty. We ended up air freighting in uh, bottles because we did, our shipment wasn't going to be in time. And so we, uh, we had like 800 bottles to sell for this weekend. And so it was, the whole thing was just like a, a kind of rushed together thing from the bottling standpoint. Cause it's just like this, this sucks that we waited six years and now suddenly the whole supply chain just like falls apart. But, uh, so that was part of it, I think, as well, is it just wasn't a massive push that we did. And then when you don't do that mass massive push to have the reception that, you know, it sells out that quickly and that we had people in line, like that was just, uh, it, it was just an amazing experience. And yeah, we had gotten there early. Uh, Patrick and I had the advan advantage, Patrick, VP of sales and marketing, uh, had the advantage of just sitting up in kind of one of the areas where we could see down the lane if people came and showed up and we were just getting there early and drank coffee. Uh, and finally we got a couple there and it's like, okay, this is feeling better. At least we got a few people in line. Good, good. And then we went up there and then just, it kind of blew up from there. So it was a lot of fun. Um, I think the other thing is that in general, like, I mean, I'm a small town Kansas kid who grew up on a farm, right? Like you just don't expect certain things. It's not like we're in the middle of Kentucky and we all have this history of working at all the local distilleries and we came together and put this together and we knew what to expect. Like we all have the backgrounds that are from a different thing. And it's just, uh, we, we know what we're doing and we know that we're proud of what we're doing and we're doing it to the best of our ability, but still at times you just can't help but doubt yourself because like, it's just part of life. And I think that was uh, a little bit of, at least for me, what was going through the process. Like, I know I like to drink the bourbon that I was pulling from the barrels, but is the rest of the world going to? Uh, that's, that's a very different question. And so uh, just something that I think overall in the process was uh, very humbling and still is this day that people you know, that the fact that we're on a podcast talking about our bourbon, uh, to me is still very cool. So, uh, thank you for having us again, because I enjoy this. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. We're used to having our own podcast where we kind of control it. So we know what we're going to say. So this is good. It's kind of fun to be on the other side of the other side of the microphone. Like I said, I'd like to make it worth the while, make it worth the time of the people coming on. So there's, there's no better compliment than that i can hear then you know people are hearing all right it's a question i hadn't thought of or that's something i hadn't thought of in a while or you know yeah. so that's the best thing i can ask for yeah wow, this right. is great
so at this point, I mean, I think we've, we've dug into the history and, and there's still more that we could ask about, but I want to make sure to also keep moving towards what is in people's hands now and what's available to them. Uh, so as I said, this all started with me getting this bottle um, out of nowhere. I don't for the life of me remember if I was introduced to it or if it just showed up on my doorstep, in which case I have to ask how to get my address and thank you. But um, still, you know, in since then, I've been able to try the first incarnation. So that batch one. And then I also got to try the uh, weeded as well. And a couple of things came to mind. You know, the, the review that I wrote and the full write-up, I should say. I refer, refer to it as a review, but it's never just a review. It's the whole write-up uh, for the first one was, you know, quite laudatory It, it because I, I really liked the bourbon. Uh, you guys ended up with, I think my, I have to look back at my awards because I don't remember offhand, but I think it was like either best first release or if you didn't get first, it was second worldwide. So it was very close. Um, I think you did get first. Anyway, I'll double check that. But anyway, uh, the point of it was that I was looking through this and when I'm looking at awards, which you're now no stranger to, even a year into the bourbon's release, I'm trying to think about, you know, what takes this whiskey of any type to a new level or what makes it that much more interesting for a consumer. Now we've all tasted across American whiskey, bourbons rise american whiskeys that are that come out younger for a much higher price point ones that come out older for a, an even higher price point or something like that but you know the first batch the first release of your ben holiday bourbon comes out at a 59.99 retail price so basically at about ten dollars a year which is generally the scotch measurement so you're at the $10 a year mark for that, which is to me a, a great marker anyway, but yep. to be doing that for a first re- uh, release is pretty rare. And then you follow that up with something that is $10 less instead of going up. And for, for a weeded project product, excuse me, which is uh, arguably kind of in vogue right now, it's becoming more and more popular there are more and more weeded whiskeys weeded bourbons coming out so i mentioned that uh not necessarily to to get into the economics of it but just because because of everything else going on at mccormick distilling you're able to offer at a certain price point that is not exorbitant and i looked at that and i said for 60 bucks i would very happily purchase a bottle of this you know for for my shelf myself and my shelf and I was lucky I had one sent to me, but mm-hmm. even so, uh, it, it was surprising. And I think that was one of the things that really took it to the next level for me was this is something that's accessible. Yep. You know, it's not, it's a premium product and that and that's not to take away from the fact that it's a premium product, but premium does not have to be hundred plus 250 plus for something like this. And so it's worth mentioning just because that's not the case with a lot of first releases from distillers. Um, Especially as you were mentioning with all the supply chain stuff, no doubt those bottles cost more, the caps cost more. Yeah. Um, The labels you said you got locally. So maybe not those, but everything else had to cost more to air freight in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
definitely uh, not always the, the easiest thing for sure. And, and there are plenty of costs in, associated with this. And so, uh, yeah, one, one thing I will mention briefly is that the, so the, the weeded is line priced. Uh, so similar 59.99. So um, we, we kept them both the same. So they are still that same price point on that. I feel like I just sounded like a salesperson saying line price. No, I kind of hated myself for that. I've been yeah. hanging out with yeah. salespeople a lot lately and I don't know <laughs> if I like that or not, but uh, yeah, so they're, they're similar, but yes, it's one of those things that we, we had that discussion and it is, you know, we, we want to make sure that it obviously is a, a payback and return, but uh, is accessible and is something that we can, we can have, uh, you know, we don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to ever price yourself out where you just end up shutting down your still because no one can afford to drink it or no one wants to pay to drink that. And so uh, it was trying to find that sweet spot. I think we did. Uh, we're very pleased with how it, how it's gone with, you know, I don't think people are, uh, you, you just never know when you, whenever you ask people to spend money on your product, you just never know. And so we're, we're very happy. I think it worked out, uh, for us, um, in, in a positive way. And it's, it's where it should be, uh, I think. And as we go, uh, we'll see, we'll have various releases, um, locally, whether it's, uh, you know, around the Kansas city area, uh, whether it's at our welcome center or we'll have, uh, additional, um, more of, uh, the larger scale releases. So with these products, um, you know, both the, the bottled and bond pieces. Uh, so the Ben holiday bottled and bond, which is the original mash bill. And then the holiday soft red wheat, uh, those are kind of in the Midwest region at this point. So I did a few podcasts early on when it's like, okay, well, these are just in Kansas and Missouri. And so, uh, if you're outside of those States, sorry. Um, but we are, we, we have continued to produce obviously, uh, throughout the time. And, and we, uh, have finally, been able to open up additional markets and go out into the, the states. And so kind of think the center of the U.S. currently is where we're focused and where we have supply. Uh, that's not to say it isn't in other states outside of that, but those are kind of the, the core region for those two different products, if you will. And so um, that's kind of where where we're at now and and where we're going. We're going to keep this six year, six year bottled and bond one um, bottling periodically and we'll have releases uh you know maybe five times a year give or take where it's a, a different type of uh same six-year bonded same price point but it has different floors in the uh from the rick house on it and so we we keep uh releasing and keep bottling product um not necessarily each one marketed as a new release per se um but just kind of additional bottlings and different bottling dates that if you see a a March 2023, you can compare it to a January 2023 bottling. And those ones have different floors and different breakdowns on that, that label. And so um, we're continuing to do that. Uh, and then from there, it is a, a discussion of what's the next step and where, where do we line out? And we've talked about eight year, we've talked about 10 year. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have all sorts of experiments in our, our finishing cave going on of uh, taking the six year bonded product and putting into you know, toasted barrels or various other types of barrels um, and, and seeing where that lines out. And so maybe that will be something that eventually hits. And, but right now we're just playing with it. And so we get, we have a lot to learn still and a lot to figure out. Um, but we, we have those two main core, core offerings that you will be able to find uh, pretty much uh, available now. And if you're in the center of the U S so. 
That's a nice little Easter egg for for people who really care about the brand to be able to go. Um, I, I don't know if they'd go necessarily call it a vertical, but to be able to say, oh, this is different than the bottle I have at home or something. And in some ways, I kind of see them as the same way you would look at like a batched, um, like an Elijah Craig Power Proof or a Booker's and these types of products that come out periodic throughout the year that they're within a profile spectrum. So, you know, it's identifiably Ben Holiday bourbon or the soft red. We, yep. But with it, their own little idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep, that's yeah, definitely what's going on. And that's what each one is. It, it, I think you nailed it. You can tell it's always the product that it is. Uh, we're not going to deviate that far uh, where it's mm-hmm. like, what is this? That's not the same. Um, but it, it is the kind of thing we have had whiskey groups. Uh, the first time we had a second bottling, I think we, we had a whiskey club that same day. And so we poured the two different ones and just let them go. And they, they argued amongst themselves, uh, for, you know, 20 minutes. And then finally let me, uh, continue talking and, and hanging out. But it was just a lot of fun because everyone does like to have the, the comparison and the side-by-side, uh, of those products. So. Absolutely. Uh, and, I've gotten to try so the first batch of the bourbon, the first offering of the soft red wheat, mm-hmm. um, and then I have a friend in Missouri who got me samples of the uh, Rickhouse proofs. Yep. Um, so I know the Rickhouse proof of the wheat is of that release. I don't know which release of the Rickhouse proof of the bourbon is. I so I have to check with him and see. Uh, it would and have been a different out. one. We, we didn't start it, that. It wasn't the first one. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Rickhouse proof, uh, and and we use that term, we have that one in one barrel bourbon, but uh, Rickhouse proof meaning full proof of the batch. Um, and that was, we started that in our November bottling of last year. And so we've had, uh, what would that be? Three three different ones of the Ben Holiday Rickhouse and then the, the soft drink. We, we've had two different ones as well. So yeah. Yeah, I... I mean, look, I, I like high proof stuff, especially with American whiskey. I just tend towards high proof bourbons. Um, and I love the Rickhouse proof. So I will have to find myself some bottles of those, but even, even so I went back and I compared it to the bottles of the other two of the bottle in the bond version, the hundred proof. Mm-hmm. And I still maintain that the hundred proof holds up a lot better than other hundred proof whiskeys, American whiskeys. Yeah. Again, I'm just someone for me, I've been told on, on all of my tasting notes, I've got like, I don't know, I must have over 600 posted right now. I've got three times that many that will never get posted, but across the board, the biggest differentiator for me in terms of where the score ends up is mouthfeel. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah. And it maintains at 100 proof, a solid mouthfeel that is it just doesn't dissipate. It stays there. You experience it. You have time to experience it before either you swallow it or if you're tasting a lot of things, if you have to spit it out, but you know, you, you have time to really enjoy it. And I, I like that because again, you don't always get that with a six-year-old with a hundred proof with any number of things. And as much as I love the Rickhouse proof, I'm not disappointed. If I can't find that, I'd be happy with a hundred proof as well. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. I think that is uh, similar 
comment that we've seen, you know, whether it's locally with people on site is that, yeah, it's, it isn't, uh, it, it doesn't just disappear. It's not just a short finish. It's not, uh, it, it has some viscosity to it. And it's, it's just something that uh, isn't uh, a letdown at that hundred proof. And I, I'm fully on board. I drink from the barrel. Uh, so I'm all about the high proof product all the time, uh, generally, because that's just what I'm consuming at work. And so it's a, you know, but I, I would agree. It's just not one that uh, disappears for sure. Uh, and, and holds up pretty well, I think. So it's what I'm drinking here uh, at, at home uh, often. You know, when I come home, I got to be responsible and watch the kids. So I got to step it down from 120 proof just to 100. So it's know, very responsible. Very responsible. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to say you. Clear. <laughs> I'm clearly kidding, but yes, but, uh, you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, you, if the kids are around, you lean more towards the floor one where it's 114 proof yeah, instead of the floor exactly. you know, yeah. seven. You got it. Uh, so to, to get into a process question and for the audience, you know, normally I do ask a lot about the, the still types, the, um, mm -hmm. the yeast, the mash bill, the distillation. Uh, in, in this particular case, I'm not asking a lot of those questions. One, because a lot of us on the website, it's readily available. So I wanted to dig a little deeper into other things, but um, also because if you listen to the podcast, your podcast, uh, a lot of the questions are answered. So, you know, I'm going to have a question to finish off pun not intended about your finishing program in yep. the cave. I'm not going to dive that deeply into it because you have an hour long episode about the uh, finishing yeah. cave, which I loved. I was Thank listening you. to it again earlier to make sure I didn't miss anything, you know? So uh, that's the thing. I want to try not to double up on things when I think, you know, listen to their podcast. They got some good stuff. Uh, so, but the one, one of the process questions I didn't uh, see originally was, so you're coming off, the or out of the barrel i should say but somewhere between 114 to 120 122 depending on where it's is mm -hmm. in the rickhouse um what is your proofing process like yeah so um we've actually seen and i'll even uh widen it a little bit so uh, in the one barrel program which is what we call a uh, single barrel so we've expanded that uh since last fall um, and so we've seen from that first floor drop down to 111, uh, and we're about to bottle, uh, a bourbon from the sixth floor that is 126 proof. Uh, so we, we definitely have seen even more fluctuation in that rickhouse. Um, wow. with, with most of our products, um, what we have done is, uh, so the, the bottled and bond I'll touch in a, a minute. Uh, all the other ones, the one barrel bourbon or the rickhouse proof, it's it's pretty simple. You don't add water. Uh, right. It's uh, we're not we're not doing anything on those ones. Whether we're we're just letting air uh, air blow the lines through, and we're not proofing down at all. And so when people come on site to pick a barrel, uh, if they see it presented to them at you know 119, uh, oftentimes it ends up being a little bit higher when it's actually in the bottle. Uh, because we're, whereas they all expect the opposite. They expect that we're going to, you know, flush the lines with water. or We're going to do a little bit just with a little extra water and we're, we're not, we're, we're making it difficult on ourselves. It's so much fun. Um, but with, with the bottled and bond piece, uh, so what we'll do is we'll dump the barrels and initially we're going to, we're going to rinse the barrels just with a little bit of RO water, uh, as we dump them just to make sure that we're fully getting all the bourbon out of them. 
uh, from there, we, uh, we, we send into one of the processing tanks and we're going to first, well, we, we pull off that rickhouse proof version before we add any water, but, uh, from there we, we do slowly reduce it down. Uh, we're going to ultimately take it down to about 106 proof, uh, slowly to get it for the filtration. Um, we're not chill filtering. We're not, we're not doing anything, uh, aggressive on the filtration. We're just making sure that we remove all the sediment and clarify the product. And so, uh, that's where we take it down to about that 106 mark for the filtration, filter it. And then we're going to let it sit, uh, for, uh, for a while, uh, you know, let's call it uh, a couple weeks, um, before we take it down to the final bottling proof. And so, um, you know, I, I've always heard a little bit more of that slowly, proofing down over time, uh, help soften, soften it up uh, a little bit and, and improve that, uh, uh, whether it is or is not the case, um, you know, just from the logistics standpoint, it tends to work well for us. And so, uh, it, it kind of, kind of works from that standpoint. So we're, we're going to continue to stick with that. That was some, one of the things that, uh, the process you have to play around with, and we'll probably try different things and we'll try to experiment with that, that this was what we be kind of started when we began. Um, I remember I was in a blending class uh, with uh, Nancy Fraley uh, and she had talked about the slow water reduction and having, you know, some ways of slowly reducing your spirit from barrel proof down to uh, the bottling proof and, and uh, making sure that you didn't uh, add water too quickly and, and saponify any of the, the products in there and, and strip them out when you filtered it. And so I, whether I've never proved any of that out, I've never tested it. I've never explored that in any great sense. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert in that field, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we do in general is the, that kind of couple week process. It's, it's become a question. That, no, that was very, that I, it's definitely, it, it's, uh, a question that very rarely gets asked. And I, it was Colin at Santa Fe spirits. I always go back to them who mentioned it for the first time. And now I ask almost everybody in case I don't hear it on a podcast or something, because yeah, no one asks that. That's um, true. So, and speaking of things that no one asks, Kyle, you are, you have that bioengineering background, the, uh, you know, bio ag science, all of this, what is, I'm going to put you on the spot. What is the nerdiest topic that you want to talk about that you think oh. is relevant to talk about that you don't ever think you're going to be asked about? <laughs> uh, man, that's a, I don't know. That, that is a great question that I don't know if I have an on the spot answer for. Um, I, I love, I, I mentioned it previously on a different podcast. I love, uh, or on one of our podcasts is I love just the exploration of the flavor compounds of, of bourbon. And so uh, the GC mass spec and running that and seeing what, what flavor compounds exists and how, how different processes in the distillery, different yeast strains, different, any trials that we do, uh, how that impacts it. And so it's uh, not necessarily something that I can address right now because uh, I, I don't have my GC in front of me, so I don't have any of the results. But uh, no, it's just a lot of it, it, the everyone does expect, and and it, fairly so. Bourbon is judged by the taste. That's how you ultimately are judging everything. Um, but 
there's a lot of science that goes with it and it's, it's a balancing act all the time. And so I'm, I'm tasting and, and trying a bunch of different barrels, but on the flip side, we're running the, uh, the lab, uh, testing on those in a similar way so that we can, you know, understand it a little bit more and we may not ever understand everything, but, uh, that's, that's just part of what I, what I enjoy, uh, is just kind of doing the, the lab stuff as well. Look, it, it was not a leading question at all, but somehow I just yeah. knew the GCMS was going to come up as part of the answer, if not. The so it's just a lot uh, of fun. That's a tool that not a lot of places have. And it's just a, a, to, yeah. for us to have that. I, I enjoy it. Um, there's a lot of other different things that I'm, I'm trying to convince. But man, lab, ex lab equipment is so expensive. Uh, it's yeah. hard to justify all of the different purchases. And so uh yeah, but it's it's just something that um, as as I go through uh, playing around with that and and uh, all the different experiments that we could come up with, and that may be uh, something that we release in the future, and that we get truly nerdy on is talking about all the flavor compounds. We'll see. Hopefully, uh, we have that mm -hmm. distillate journal on our website, so we can always uh, mm -hmm. completely nerd out on that. Again, like I said, that's. Uh you have a lot of on the website that's very transparent about what certain batches are and all that. And uh, that's actually a lead into my second to last question, which is talking about your climate. So you, you noted in, in the first batch of the bourbon that you had a loss, an evaporation loss of about 32.7%. Yep. Second batch was a little lower, it's 31.1%, mm -hmm. but it's been around that area. Is that, are you finding that that's pretty consistent across the board yeah in general that's kind of where we're at and what we're expecting um yeah that first one we had uh, a couple different barrels that were uh completely empty and that was actually for a different reason it was uh when we first started up we weren't distilling every day and so we've got this barrel truck in and then a bunch sat around and uh they mm -hmm. got dried out and then i think they uh leaked pretty quickly early on in the process but uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing in that 30% mark at this point. Um, and we haven't dumped a ton that are younger. And so it's hard to say whether, you know, what the percentage is by year. Um, and we'll see as we dump older products uh, where that lines out as well. But with that six year mark, 30% is generally what we're, what we're seeing across the board. And we'll, we'll continue to, and if I don't put this in there, Jordan, or anyone, feel free to call me out and tell me that I forgot to put it in there. But we're going to make sure that we continue to put that information in there because I think it is fascinating to, to see that information. So, I love it. I, I want to see that. So uh, taking the 30,000 foot view on this, what is your aging climate like where you are in Missouri? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's just a little bit hotter and a little bit colder than Kentucky. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, in, in general, I think I follow a lot of the bourbon, uh, world and I, I, you know, social media or whatever, but you can see the same systems that come from here immediately, like the next day are in Kentucky. So if we get a, a winter storm the next day, it's in Kentucky, same winter storm, just different day. And so it's all, always very similar to kind of just look across and as a, uh, from a, that stance. And so it's when we look at that Rick house and that traditional style of aging, I think that is important for us. And, and it helps uh, that we're like that because if we were extreme heat, uh, you know, a Texas style climate or extreme cold where it was like a Montana style, uh, it might not age the way we would 
be doing currently. And that you'd have to adjust your plan and figure out a way so that you can release the bourbon that way. And so for us, I think it, it worked out that we're very similar overall to that. And, uh, it, it kind of ages very similarly. Um, don't know exactly. I'd love to experiment with that and send off barrels of dis or barrels of, uh, off to different distilleries throughout the world and see how they end up. But you know, that's a, a product for a different day. That seems pretty expensive. So I was going to say that might, that might add another, you know, five ten onto the, yeah, onto the line exactly. price. So, yep. but I'm happy paying another five ten if it means, you know, another piece of lab equipment, that's really nerdy that I like, okay. or, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm good with the little investment there. So, okay. Sounds good. I'll relay the um, message. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jordan, you're here as witness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> first so the all right so we're down to i promise the last two questions the first one is yeah hell i'm not even gonna make it a question i'm just gonna say it i so in listening to the finishing casks episode i of all the ones that you mentioned uh and i really do encourage people to listen to that episode it was uh fantastic and you learned a bit a little bit more about the geography of the site and the cave the ancient cave that's there um the two that interested me the most, uh, number two was the wave stave mm-hmm. because I've never heard of that before. Yep. But number one was the American Oak heavy toast char one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think wave stave is an interesting one. We had, uh, We'd worked with Independent Stave Company before um, on barrel trials very early on where we actually aged product in this. And so um, we have a six-year-old product in one of these barrels uh, currently. Um, and so it's it's the, they take the barrel and it's, um, I don't know enough about the toasting process, but uh, I believe it is a toasted barrel ultimately. But they cut these staves before they build the barrel and they cut a little wave into it. And so it's basically a way to expose the, uh, the bourbon to more of the wood. It increases the surface area inside of the barrel, but while still being a 53-gallon barrel. Um, so then at the end, they do a quick char one on that just so that it continues to be bourbon. Um, but it's relying more a little bit on the toasting and the seasoning standpoint of things. Um, so yeah, we, we have six-year product, and then we also uh, are doing that finishing where we took six-year-old bourbon, dumped it from the original Char 3, char three barrels, um, and put it in our ancient cave um, in this, this product, and so or in that barrel. Uh, so we will see how it ends up. Um, we're, we're just playing around with it right now. We got one of those, and we just want to see what happens throughout the phases, and, and we may... I, I, always give the caveat these are sold on site so it it helps from that standpoint but we may take them too far we don't know we don't know if what we end up in the bottle is the perfect version or not we are experimenting and that's the whole point of an experiment um so we'll see on that one uh the other one you said was the american oak heavy toast char one is that what you said yeah so it'll be very similar um and i actually just opened that one up uh yesterday I believe. Um, and so it's been in there uh, about nine months. Um, and it's just one that, you know, that, that toasted barrel, uh, has really come around, uh, recently and it, it adds a different layer and a completely different flavor profile to it. Um, that what you normally don't see. And so it's, it, 
provided a lot of sweetness to it and, and changed it in a way that I, I don't know for sure uh, what we would have known or what we would have expected, but it's uh it's very, very different from where we're at. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I think it's for a good thing, but I'm also not fully convinced that we're ready yet. So we'll, we'll see on how long that one goes, but yeah, with the, the toasting ultimately, and I, you probably have uh, talked about this before, or a lot of people know, but the toasting is independent stave company or whoever the cooperage is, uh, will send it through essentially an oven and just kind of, uh, heat the barrel up slowly and, and try to manipulate, manipulate the wood, uh, compounds through a different way through the heat rather than just that flash, um, flash char. And so, um, I always give the, the marshmallow analogy, the toasting is roasting slowly over the campfire and letting that that marshmallow caramelize and slowly melt. And then, uh, the charring is throwing it in and letting it catch fire. And so, uh, two different ways of cooking a marshmallow, but when you scale it up to a barrel, uh, similar thing, it's just two different ways of making a barrel that, uh, can change the flavor profile. And that's what we're playing with independent stave on, on some of those things. And, uh, we've done different trials with them. And so it's, it's just a lot of fun and hopefully, uh, we, we are trying to get them to come on our podcast and talk too. So we'll see maybe in the future we'll have that, but. Hey, good luck. Those, uh, Cooperages, even when you're close to them, they're sometimes difficult to get on. I yeah. got Kelvin on as an early guest and I was like, Ooh, that's yeah. as close as I'm getting. So, yep. uh, no, I'm, I'm very interested in, in what's coming next. And, you know, we'll, we'll close that by asking, you know, you're in the Midwest right now, product wise, yep. uh, what are your plans for for expansion for the next couple of years where you want to be yeah so i think we will have to partly see how that how that goes you know it's the it's the kind of thing where we're rolling out the new markets as we go um and as we have the product available and we want to be able to we we never want our product in the markets that they have been released to become like completely allocated that you can never find. If you like Ben Holiday or Holiday Soft Red wheat and it's in your market, we want you to be able to find that. Uh, maybe it may not always be on the shelf, but it, that, who knows? Bourbon is a weird world, but like we don't want it to be the point where it's just like uh, gone forever. And so we're taking a very strategic approach of which states do we add when and how can we do that? And, and that's, uh, so that's where we're at. So we'll see, uh, we'll, we want to make sure that, uh, we do it in a way that, uh, we don't make a lot of people mad at us in the process that like, Hey, we can't, we can't buy your bourbon anymore. We really liked it. So, uh, but no, I think it's, uh, we, we hope that we're throughout the Midwest and that it's selling, uh, selling well. And we are, we are continuing to ramp up and, uh, you know, there's always discussions of uh, other, you know, other expansion opportunities in the future. And what does that look like? Um, and so we'll see. We'll see on that front. But uh, for right now, we again, when we started making bourbon, uh, it wasn't a completely everyday thing. And then we kind of slowly built that up. And so we're going to slowly have more and more production over time. And so uh, availability to expand. Um, and then we'll just see if it, it continues to expand beyond that. I I would personally love another Rick house or two. So hopefully everyone likes uh, our, our bourbon and keeps buying. Cause I would love to have that. So it'd be a lot of fun. Get music on the phone. <laughs> you got, I mean, you got a Rick house from the thirties and one from the sixties. So I think it's time for a third or fourth. I, I think so. Yeah. Seems, seems right for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. So with that, we'll start closing out. Kyle, Jordan, thank you both so much for taking the time today to talk about this. I'm thrilled to finally get to talk about the brand, uh, have both on, talk about the history, the process. Uh, I'm quite excited for what is coming next. Um, hell, maybe I'll have the opportunity to do a single barrel or sorry, a one barrel with you guys yeah. in the future. Yep, Absolutely. And, That'd be awesome. Yeah, and I'm just looking forward to seeing what happens. So as always, we're going to have uh, not only the taste notes and such uh, in the show notes for this episode, we'll also have links to all the social media where you can buy and find bottles to buy of Holiday and the Soft Red Wheat. Uh, we will also have a link instead of, well, this time it's going to be just a link to your guys' podcast because that is where most of the on-air research came from. Uh, and any other relevant links as possible we're going to throw in there. And, uh, you know, if you listen to this and you do want to do a single barrel from them, let me know because uh, can't I, as much as I would love to, I can't buy the entire barrel myself. So I will need some support on doing that. But in the meantime, Kyle, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, hang on with me for a second. It's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast, and I will see you all next week. Thanks for having us. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedding.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedding.com. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection. And sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting right now, only five spots remain in the barrel share club. So grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at whiskey, my wedding ring or at whiskering podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at whiskey ring. You can follow on Facebook at whiskey, my wedding ring or join the Facebook group, the whiskey ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank for the support and see you next time.